Hello, beautifuls. Welcome back to another episode of the Sexual Space Podcast. On today's podcast, uh, we have a another dynamic woman. We have Audrey Agustav. Uh, she's a vibrant family woman who considers herself a lady with a soft heart and a spirit of a warrior. A psychotherapist who specializes in substance abuse and couples counseling. Audrey is driven to fulfill her divine purpose of normalizing a mental health positive approach in Caribbean spaces. She has a typical discerning mindset of a fogel archetype and believes in living life with intention. Welcome to the podcast, Audrey. Oh my God, that intro was amazing. <laughs> no, no, it did. I felt like, wow, she really described me how I like to, you know, I think you hit all the all the tenants that really embody, you know, um, how I would describe myself. I'm very happy, very excited to be here. I've been Welcome. listening to your podcast and, and really love and believe in, you know, the work and the mission and what you do here. So I'm very excited to be a guest. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. I'm glad that we're uh, finally <laughs> getting around <laughs> to this episode. Uh, we connected last year and I know I knew immediately that I would love to have you on and uh, just continue some of the conversations that we're already having. So for our guests, you know, um, share with us, you know, what is, uh, um, how do you define your identity? How do you describe yourself and just maybe how you show up in the world? How do I show up in the world? Okay, I am a Black woman, a Haitian American. I'm a mother, I'm a daughter, sister, uh, a Virgo. I am a heterosexual woman. Mm -hmm. I am uh, monogamous. I am traditional, but also uh, modern at the same time. Like I'm a postmodern type type of woman. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. Lovely. So tell us a little bit about your life. So uh, you were also a psychotherapist. Um, I mean, you're all these things you describe, the mother, uh, family woman, everything. So, you know, tell us about the life you've created for yourself and, you know, just oh can share with me briefly what your journey has been like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's do this. Um, yeah, I am a person who right when I went into college, um, really felt connected with the mentorship and, and the retreats that I did. And I felt pretty immediately that my journey was to be of service in helping with people and helping them understand themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I started off in substance abuse and that was just by happenstance. Really? Um, yeah. It's, uh, I actually didn't do too well in college the first time. And instead of kind of continuing in the college with like a low GPA, I said, you know what, let me start over. I went to um, community college and I felt like, let me leave this with a certification of substance abuse counseling mm -hmm. um, because that's what's going to make me competitive and help me explain my bad uh, GPA. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was actually very strategic. I was like, you know, by the time I applied to my master's program, I need to show a little more for myself. So I just did it mm -hmm. like that. That's how I picked my first specialty, but I fell in love. Yeah. And I felt like I belonged there. Um, and I did about six to seven years work in substance abuse in different, you know, inpatient methadone clinics. Um, I always took a family approach. So okay. because I always took a family approach, I would always work with a client and their partner, client and their parent, et cetera. Mm. But a lot, a lot of times a person and their partner. 
And uh, it was through that that I realized that, hey, I'd be a really good couples counselor. And, you know, substance abuse is getting kind of heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, let me, I got my master's. I was like, let me do, give myself a new lens. Yeah. Um, so right now I work in couples therapy. Okay. Uh, I use the Gottman method, um, which if, that could come up later in what we're talking mm-hmm. about. Um, and, um, uh, about half of my caseload right now are couples and a lot are singles that are here to process relationships and sexual yeah. identities and stuff. Nice. And we're going to go into that a little later, but also share with me, what was your own journey into womanhood? So you've described a few seasons that you've been through. Um, I wonder for you who, who helped shape you and, um, uh, maybe who was instrumental, um, in your journey, because it seems like you have both the American and Caribbean background. Uh-huh. And I wonder how, how that has contributed to your own development. Oh my God, this is such a beautiful question. I love it. Um, <laughs> my development, I mean, my development is being a first generation American of an identity uh-huh. that is inherently political. So mm. that, that means a lot. Um, my identity, my development is, you know, growing up in like ethnic enclaves where, you know, and at the time uh, to be Haitian was not being a member of the Caribbean community. I mean, I think it's evolved some since I was younger, but Haitian identity, Haitians were not really welcomed into like Caribbean groups of people in the same way. Like when you were Haitian, you were different. Mm. So um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I think also within my family system, my mother definitely, I, I definitely learned a lot about womanhood through her. Also, just what I observed in my family system. I come from a family system where the average woman is married, you know, married, um, monogamous, for the most part, has children with one person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really the family system that I came from. And yeah. I... And, Sounds like mine. (laughs) Yeah. I had a child outside of wedlock, which was pretty different from my family system. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a huge part of me shaping as a woman um, is that experience of, you know, explaining like the journey into motherhood without having first done the journey into wifehood. Yeah. Um, And what that means about how you interact with your parents because you're Usually, like, I guess the the way that they give you the rite of passage into womanhood is you're off and you're married now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means something about how they interact with your kids. But because they didn't process you as becoming a woman and then now you're raising a person, it's there's a different kind yes. of pushback on your adulthood and your womanhood, mm. you know. Um, but like, you know... It's like facts of life thing. I think sometimes we kind of talk about things as if like, this is a trauma. And I mean, yes, it was very difficult and traumatic as I was going through it, but I don't, I don't, I'm not like a scab because Mm -hmm. of it either. It's, it's, it's a rite of passage and sometimes it goes one way or the other. And I, and I've gone through it, you know? Yeah. Your story sounds very similar to mine. Actually, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I did have my first born out of wedlock as well. And I had to navigate some of these all those same things you've described and just um, kind of different going into marriage after that and yeah, continuing to grow my family. So that, that's pretty interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So as we, you know, as you've talked a little bit about that, I wonder how did you come to embrace your sexuality? Cause I know for me coming in, straight you know I was in I was a sophomore when I had my my first and um 
you know, there was a little bit of shame around, you know, well, I'm, I'm here to go to school and now I have, I'm pregnant. I'm going to have this baby. And of course, as women, we have options. I mean, I, I knew I was going to keep my baby. I was going to have my baby. Um, but it's also just a shame of doing it by myself. Cause while I was in a relationship, we were in two different countries. Um, okay. so that kind of, I think that there was some guilt and shame ar- around that. And I feel like for the longest while, I struggled with my own sexuality because of that. Um, you know, and I've had to do a lot of work, a lot of work to get to where I am now, to be open mm. and to be able to speak up and ask for what I want and and make sure that I am understanding my own needs, you know, in that sense. So I wonder, what was that like for you? So as you were on that journey, the womanhood journey and embracing yourself and getting to know Audrey, um, what did what did that look like for you? Um, wow. Listening to you talk about your journey, it kind of, I don't know, I felt my, my body almost physically go back into like a little girl state of what mm-hmm. it means to, um, begin to experience sexual feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, to be honest, looking back at it, I think I actually remember experiencing some young and it's, it's so I feel so scared to almost say it like, like, what does it mean about not, not scared, but just aware Mm -hmm. that, uh, how a person receiving that information will process it based on the Mm. lens of where they are and their acceptance of their own sexuality, you know? And so I feel, I remember masturbating, uh, as an adolescent, Mm -hmm. like, discovered I literally was just discovering my clitoris and then like mm-hmm. the understanding of the relationship with that and and but I didn't really become sexually active until significantly later <laughs> um and and honestly even with that um I don't know as far as like I never was a dater like mm-hmm. I I I think I grew up in a in an environment that was really strict about what it means to claim somebody as your romantic partner. Yeah. And so when I wasn't really, I, I'm not the kind of person that is easily interested in dating somebody. Mm-hmm. So because I wasn't really dating somebody, um, what that means about like, okay, does that mean that you have casual sex or do you not? I mean, those are very yeah. hard questions. Mm-hmm. To have as a young woman and even as an older woman who is like past that. I don't want to say past that. I just mean like, what are you going to tell me about who I was when I was 21? (laughs) But I still feel aware of the shame that somebody can put on me Mm. for choosing to say, I did this 15 years ago. Yeah, And that I think sums up my emotional development with my sexuality. Mm. Oh my I feel like we have so much in common. So like you, <laughs> yes, I began that exploration very early on. You know, I, I was a shared child. So I, I heard I heard a lot of sex, really. I heard different people having sex. Sometimes it was scary. Sometimes it was, oh, what are they doing? You know, like there were times I was genuinely concerned, <laughs> you know. So parts of me, I guess, kind of responded to that. And I did explore with my own clitoris very early and then I still probably didn't have my first 
sexual experience until like 17, going into 18. Um, while I was curious, I had some really, you know, I, I grew up Catholic. I had some really strong values and I believed, you know, that this was going to be a sin. And if I, I did it, I remember my first sexual experience and crying because I, I thought like, wow, I'm really going to go to hell because of my this God. now. <laughs> You know, so I I went through that and oh my God, even after I had my son, when the idea of casual sex was like, huh? like, like you, like you just described it, like, is that something I could do? I mean, can I just have sex without wanting anything more or even expecting anything more? And I think college was a great place to <laughs> experience some of that <laughs> because everyone moved on to, you know, wherever their path took them. but. I think that was the place where I really began kind of shaping that, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, can, I agree that college and also I was, I was a traveler. So mm-hmm. oh my God, it's so, I can't believe I'm actually saying this. I'm going to be honest with you. I can't believe I'm saying this. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm really happy that I'm saying it. I yeah. feel, I feel very aware that like I have an older brother as I'm saying, mm-hmm. and like, oh, what is he going to say to know that he has a sister who is sexual and who has been <laughs> casual? And I'm like, I can't believe I'm, I'm 34 years old. Like that's, mm-hmm. I think it's so ridiculous that I still carry that, you yeah. know? Yeah. Well, what were your parents like? So I know sometimes it, it, the home we were shaped and nurtured in makes it different in how we internalize some of this. So were your parents very, would you say they were sex positive or was it like, don't talk about boys, don't think about boys, don't touch yourself? What was it like for you? Yeah. I mean, it's so hard to say what it was like because I always talk about my parents at this stage of my development through the understanding of what they were capable of. Yeah. And so I probably make it sound fluffier than it was as I was experiencing it. Mm. But I mean, it just wasn't something we spoke about. And I knew that I would be in trouble if there was evidence that that was something that I was interested in or (laughs) thought about, you know, like, you know, but it's not that a thing happened, a moment happened, nothing like that. It's Mm -hmm. just, um, I just know. Yeah, that it's not what we do or talk about or it's shameful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So same, same in my, in my Caribbean home, although my, my mom wasn't very actively, she was present, but not very actively involved. There wasn't a lot of talk about that. I think it was, I mean, they knew I talked with boys. I mean, I, I, I talked with boys. I was, I had boyfriends. I just didn't cross that line, right? That's probably why none of them (laughs) stuck around. Um, (laughs) So I didn't knew I talked with boys. I mean, I had, you know, some people in my family who thought that I was doing some of these things, which which I wasn't. I was honestly so careful. Um, I had a sense of awareness, which I keep reflecting back even in my own therapy sessions. I, I try to figure out where that came from because I could have been in a lot of mess, but I, I didn't. So I feel like some, maybe some of those values earlier on, which I really embraced. I think as I'm coming into more into my womanhood, I'm starting to unlearn and challenge some of the messages we've received. But at the time, I feel like they were grounding. Um, it was my place of safety. Um, it was where I was able to form my identity. And at that time, it was, yeah, I could 
work on my psychosocial development, but I also felt like I was very rooted in in the church and whatever they were feeding me. So I think that's kind of what what kept me on on maybe the path I was um, back then. And also, I feel like having a strong strong relationship with girlfriends. So I meet people now in therapy and some people don't have that. I felt like I had a strong girlfriend group that kind of kept me grounded. Like we were safe. We focused on our academics. We had boyfriends, but we knew what to prioritize. I don't know where we got that sense of awareness or even, you know, maybe our parents, but Mm -hmm. it just seems like we were very focused even if we... We were prattiers, you know, we, we we had fun. We always knew these are some lines we're not going to cross or we we're probably not ready for. So I wonder for you, did you have like a, a girl group or, or like strong friendships that kind of carried you through through the years or supported some of that for you? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, defer, I never felt judged in my surroundings okay. per se. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I, yeah, I think I was open. I was ver- verbal about my, the fun that I was having, mm-hmm. you know, when I was having fun and when I was serious. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the people around me that I chose to self-disclose to cared. Um, I think to be honest, I'm going to think about it it almost only felt harder. And that's kind of what brings me to coming here. It almost felt harder when I became a person who was becoming more serious about dating and what that meant about like, I don't know, there was a certain point in my life and I can't say that any one particular thing uh, is the reason, but I just made the executive decision that Mm -hmm. I just didn't want to be sexually active, that I... I just started identifying what I wasn't getting in relationships because I wasn't taking what people consider a traditional approach. Mm. Um, And as I've become more aligned with that, I've gotten closer to uh, getting what I want out of partnership and what really feeds me, Mm -hmm. which is real companionship and real like emotional connection and love and, you know, a decision to like to choose somebody and to really go for that. Mm -hmm. Just the two of us together. Yeah. Um, so, and I found actually that it's probably been harder for me to be vocal about my choices Mm -hmm. as I've become what is considered more traditional or conservative. Mm. Um, and I also realized that a lot too in my clients. Yeah. Um, when I talk to my clients, I find that there's a lot, there's a big, a very large community of women um, right now, especially because, because there's such a, a huge history of sex shaming, slut shaming women, um, that there's a, a, a lot of space and uh, in, in visibility for that mm-hmm. right now. And, and I, my my personal experience is that I think that the feminism movement has, it fails us because instead of saying we're here to give you the right to choose, it's, it's deciding what womanhood is at any particular stage of development. Mm-hmm. So um, 
what I noticed is that like before, in, like in the early stages of feminism, it, a lot of it was about like uh, rights, like yeah. necessity. Mm-hmm. And so the approach was, you know, things like voting or, you know, things that are about your mm-hmm. human rights. Yeah. And then as it's transitioned more into social, I, I just feel like there isn't as much space to be traditional mm. <laughs> safely. Um, and there's a lot of women who feel that way. And I kind of wanted to talk about that, yeah. about like that there isn't, that these conversations don't happen anymore. And I think it's because um, people are used to correlating it with the religious mindset. Mm. And I wish that there was space for us to talk about um, that lifestyle outside of the lens of, you know, patriarchy or church. Um, And to say, to like acknowledge that there are women who choose that, who love Mm -hmm. it are happy with it without yeah. judging without judging women who chose another life path mm-hmm. um and like i don't think that really exists as much <laughs> yeah and i wonder if it's happening in maybe smaller circles or smaller communities because yeah that you raise up some valid points and i wonder how do you tackle or how do you walk through a client um walk with a client um through that in, in a typical, uh, therapy, um, environment? I mean, you know, the truth is that it depends on where a client is and their readiness to see that in themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's really difficult because people often don't want to see any part of their personality that they, that they think of as like a strength and a, and a, um, uh, like how they fought the system as maybe a trauma response or Mm. as a, just a coping, even if it's not trauma, but just a coping or just, or just a behavior they took on that just doesn't align with who they've become later Mm. on in life, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so sometimes you have people that like, they know that they're conservative, uh, but they just feel like they should be more open because like, isn't that like women empowerment or isn't that, you know, like I, even though like, so I have some clients that I have to have conversations about what it means to desire certain things versus what it means to feel ready. Yeah, so A lot of times people are desiring of, you know, moving in with somebody, um, having sex with somebody, meeting somebody's parents, um, you know, anything that's bringing a relationship to a, a next level. Yeah. They have the desire for it, but it's like, are you really ready for what, you know, the responsibility and the work and the maintenance that comes with mm-hmm. and and how it shifts your dynamic if yeah. you're really doing that? And I don't think enough people actually are intentional mm-hmm. about making those decisions. They they just uh, are in a state of desire and doing. And so mm-hmm. what I work with with clients is just to make sure that their readiness is aligned with their desire. And if they're ready, then, then go ahead. But if you're not mm-hmm. ready, why are you so resistant of the fact that you don't feel ready? Why are you trying yeah. to force yourself that you ought to be at this stage? Hmm. What responses do you get? Oh God! I mean, because <laughs> I'm thinking of all the external factors, right? <laughs> the, the pressures. It's just the social pressures, family, even sometimes, you know, especially when you're coming, when you're hitting, you know, your mid thirties. Yeah. There's this intense pressure to, well, but you, we should have grandkids by now, or 
how come you yeah. haven't gotten married yet? Or, you know, there's all of those, all those pressures. And I feel like sometimes you didn't even pour that into me. You didn't even show me how to have a healthy relationship. You didn't even show me how to, oh my God, yes. to you know, embrace my own sexuality and show up in that space. But now all of a sudden I have to suddenly figure out, okay, I'm 35. I need this. I need to do this. And my parents are getting old. We don't know how many years they have left. Like there's so much pressure sometimes. And I wonder if clients are, well, I, I know some, I, you know, they're, they're in touch with, with that, but others are not even understanding, you know, where that is coming from to even kind of discern, you know, is this something that I'm really ready for, you know? When you talk yeah. about feminism now, I'm thinking on the flip side, I feel like more women are honoring that I can do these things later in life. I can go into my forties and then decide to have a baby or get married later. Um, some women are deciding to, you know, focus on their careers and, you know, think about kids later. And I know all of that is causing a bit of a shift. Um, you know, and I was researching the other day and even the term geriatric pregnancy, like what, (laughs) you know, you're 35 and you're thinking about starting a family and there's so much, so much fear in that. Right. And I think sometimes that, that could be some of the driving, driving factors. I think that, you know, when, when you're um, having consultations before you take on a client, um, you kind of decide like which type of client you end up working with. And so somehow I feel like I ended up working a lot with clients who are trying to give themselves more permission to actually be traditional. Mm-hmm. Uh, and who are fighting against it. So that's kind of the experience that I have the most um, Mm -hmm. with clients. And I I mean, I find that a lot of people are cognitively aware of their desire, but somehow behaviorally... uh, they almost feel like they're letting themselves down. And I've actually had that. Like, for instance, mm. I can think of a couple that came in being in an open relationship and there was literal conversation about, you know, I know that maybe this is not something that I can handle physically, mm. but that I, there's something about me that just feels like a, a political desire to stand for that, mm. you know, um, and so, I mean, we finally, we got to a place where they actually made a, a decision to be monogamous, even though they hadn't been monogamous in a long time, even in their own lives before each other. And it was actually yeah. a very beautiful experience for them. Mm. And I just, I wish there was more space. Um, I, I wish we as a society could learn how to be middle grounds, yeah. you know? We're either so conservative in a way where people are making you know, life altering decisions, like having secret abortions and stuff, or we're so liberal that people are systematically doing things that doesn't actually feel comfortable for them mm-hmm. because they feel like a good forward thinking woman should have casual sex, even if they don't actually enjoy the quality of the sex that much (laughs) or who they're doing it with. And they really fundamentally just want a person. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's coming back to that middle ground and doing that, that internal investigation. I mean, how does that match up with my, my values? How does that match up with what I really want? Right. And I think it, it kind of drives the point home that fundamentally women are still robbed of choice. Mm. Like there's always some structure that's telling us what to think. Mm. And I don't want to, you know, or, or, or because like there is the, you know, the patriarchal cloud, right. And because so much energy is in fighting against that, that we're forgetting to actually stop and really sometimes touch base with like, okay, what do I want? Like anything that we do, we should be doing because we're deciding this is what I want. Mm -hmm. Not because in choosing to do so, I'm, I'm a good Christian or I'm a good feminist or or, there's always some kind of identity that we're, that we're representing Mm -hmm. uh, other than like sitting down with ourselves and saying, this is what feels comfortable for me. Yeah. Hmm. A lot to, a lot to digest there. Um, But you know, my, my head keeps going to, but are women developed in a way to be assertive enough to even when they're having these thoughts to be able to communicate that? Mm. You know, because I feel like sometimes it that's where it is. It's yeah, I'm, I'm feeling that I'm feeling that disconnect, but how do I communicate that without pissing off whoever, either my partner, my parents? Right. Um, you know, uh, you know, there are lots of things that are coming up, you know, boundaries, people pleasing, all these mm. things. Um, and I know sometimes, especially, you know, being born and raised in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. a lot of us are not raised to be assertive. We're raised to be nice and polite and, you know, just do what the man, you know, work with the man, do what the man says. Um, I feel like a lot of times we're not taught to stand up for ourselves and I wonder if that's where we fall short a lot of the times. Yes, all of these changes. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I just, my first instinct is to say that the issue is how do we learn to be assertive (laughs) enough and do it well? Like, Mm -hmm. and that's, that's my issue with when our approach becomes, you know, how do we beat the man at their game, which is like this assertive game. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think that when we do that, that we're honoring the value in the space of feminine energy. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't think that, I don't think that, we need spaces to be assertive safely so much as we need spaces that accept that um, maybe our approach deserves just as much attention. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. I, why should, why do I need to be screaming? I, I don't look up to that behavior. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be like the most um, cutthroat person in the room to be heard. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I, I, I don't like the way that um, sometimes life can be about like, if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there's, 
you know, I, I wish that the ideal behavior were certain things that are traditionally associated with women's behavior. Why is the I, why is the thing that we're always striving towards something that is traditionally associated with men? You know, I want the world to be more soft. I don't want the world to to accept my aggression. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? That's what I want. You know, so that's uh, for me. That has been a very hard um, lesson, and I think that's that's something that I, I see in, in certain clients that I work with, which is like. I, I'm not trying to like beat my chest into this. I'm not trying to like put the che- you know the chess plays mm-hmm. right. Or I want to be able to go to my boss and say like, hey, I'm I'm not going to be here in a year. I don't want to manipulate you into thinking like I'm going to be here and then quit on the way up. And you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I and even that, just being able to speak <laughs> up. So when I speak about assertiveness, it's not aggression you know it's right. it's being able to communicate clearly and effectively and 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 be understood um certainly and i always draw that line like uh, you know i'm not asking you to be disrespectful i'm not asking you to be aggressive or you know what i find too is the lack of just communi- basic communication skills and now that i'm working more and more with couples i'm seeing that disconnect more and more like yeah. Basic communication skills. Yeah. Um, half the time we're mind reading and we're not even communicating in a way that our partner understands that we're on the same team. Oof. That's you know? serious. That's so serious. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's what I mean when I say um, being able to just have conversations, being able to to be heard and and, and listen and all the things that comes with healthy communication, which which I see oftentimes um, women struggle with, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, I could, I definitely agree with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <sighs> it's like it's, it's 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 a lot to her just in a few minutes, and it feels like yeah, some hard themes there. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I mean, when it comes to when it comes to couples. Um, if we're going to talk about the structure of a couple, I mean, if it's, it's always hard to have these conversations because I think based on how the couple, you know, shows up to each other mm-hmm. uh, regarding if they're monogamous, open, polyamorous, if, you know, if they're dating, married, you know, whatever, whatever's yeah. going on. I mean, there's so many different uh, configurations of types of couples. And I think the kind of communication that is necessary mm-hmm can almost be based on what that configuration is. Like yeah. I can imagine, mm-hmm. I, I, I think there are certain things that might be more implied or at least once you get to a certain point, right? Like, so let's say mm-hmm. when it comes to have, managing a monogamous relationship, um, uh, there probably sometimes can be less communication about stuff because maybe the line is more clearly defined yeah. sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then it's, it's not always. And, and I, uh, yeah, so that's that's one of the reasons why I kind of just think it's important to create conversations. At least from maybe I'm just I'm I'm too plugged into like social media, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I think that on a social media level, um, because things have been status quo, people are questioning everything that is status quo, mm. and it's become. A world where we're questioning it just for questioning it. Say like, okay, it's been the tradition, therefore 
Um, it's only ever existed within the realm of oppression, yeah. you know, but that's not always true. You know, mm-hmm. like, so we, we think in, of monogamy as something that has historically existed because of like control and like rich people and their money. I mean, if you look at anthropologists writing about monogamy, it's been, it's been in existence in the, in the human system for 40,000 years. Okay. We've been doing this. Um, most couples, uh, most people, like over 90% of people have uh, married, by the time that they're 40 years old, are married into some kind of monogamous dynamic. Um, so most people are actually doing monogamy. And yet when we have spaces that are about sex, I feel sometimes we're, we're, we're so um, interested in creating spaces for marginalized communities that sometimes we forget the importance of like having a traditional conversation yeah. because actually a lot of more people are really resonating with that and they have just as little education on how to manage it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because it's still coming from a space of control. Like it's yeah. some, you know, some agency that that is telling you what it looks like instead of learning how to navigate it and live within it in a way that's comfortable for you. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're so right there. And that's why I have, <laughs> I have episodes designed just around some of, some of these themes. And yeah. And I think we, yeah. Monogamous people need some of this education just as much, um, you know, but everyone's platform is going to be different um, in what they, they target. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but but I do see. I mean, I I pay attention to the trends and what's popping up on, of course, <laughs> on the feeds, um, and I do see more of some. But I do follow like traditional um, pages, like the relationship school and stuff like that. Yeah, um, and a therapist who focus on, you know, I think Gottman was traditionally. Um, I mean. I think the system is designed. I think now they're trying to open up a little bit to um, what open relationships can look like, but I think it was definitely geared towards monogamous. Oh yeah, um, it definitely, it definitely is geared towards monogamy. Yeah, <laughs> sexuals too. Yeah. How do you? How does that show up? So, um, do you do a lot of teaching, a lot of coaching? How do you go about um, incorporating um, Gottman in your work? Okay, I mean, when I get a couple, so the traditional, you know, this is Gottman. This is not me interpreting it, but Gottman Mm -hmm. is you sit with a couple, you get their history from the day that they met up until you know where they are now, Mm -hmm. as well as some of their belief systems, like you know, what do you think? how do you think you've gotten through, you know, some of your hardest times, et cetera, go through all the major transition points, like the transition of living together or having a kid or getting married or whatever. Mm -hmm. You separate them. You have an individual session with each to get some of their family backgrounds um, and just some of their thoughts that are easier to talk about on their own when you bring them back together. Mm -hmm. Um, I think how I take, and they have a lot of, you know, I think that they're very communication focused, like how to get effective communication Mm -hmm. because they're, you know, what they've studied is the understanding that I think something like uh, 69 or or, or plus percent of problems are unsolvable problems in couples so that it's going to, 
you know, for argument's sake, if you're an introvert and you're an extrovert, um, like how often to go out is probably never going to be something that's going to go away. You're probably going to have different ideas on how often you would like to be going out. And so the, the goal in that relationship will be teaching them how to navigate that mm-hmm. unsolvable problem and have healthy conflict about it. It's not yeah. really, you know, so I, which is really brilliant. Um, I think mm-hmm. what, I, what I personally bring to it um, is really some understanding about attachment styles oh, yeah. and, and <laughs> how, you know, and I think even sometimes things like birth order, like, even oh my goodness, you're speaking I, my language. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I recognize in myself that because I'm the youngest of my family system, mm-hmm. like I'm an extremely defensive person because I am not used to being able to like make a decision without somebody telling me why it's wrong or, you know, yes. whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm extremely defensive because of that. Um, and that shows up in my relationship, <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, I, I think those are the three things that I really bring. And then mm-hmm. my style, uh, because I come from a substance abuse background, I think I can be a little bit more confrontational, mm-hmm. um, but it works for me. I mean, I, I think it's important to kind of be able to have real talk because real talk yeah, is a real yeah. understanding. Mm-hmm. So you do kind of have to confront somebody and say, hey, like this is, you know, what you're contributing to the issues within the relationship right now. Um, but yeah, for the most part, <laughs> I think, Pro, like processing how they have conflict mm-hmm. and also just uh, helping couples let go of their long-term resentments. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking my language. <laughs> yeah. Um, any, any tips, uh, you know, I know, you know, it seems like we just touched on so many separate yeah. things. Yeah. Oh my God. I, this I is like, like... <laughs> I'm the conversation have, that keeps giving. Yeah, I feel like sometimes I I need this kind of I don't know like a, on the couch just talking. Maybe not a podcast, but like a video series or something because there's just so much to go into that. Sometimes I'm thinking about the time, you know. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. I can yeah. Imagine. But any um any tips for couples? So in terms of um creating space for traditionalism and um, being able to honor some of that and also being able to speak up and, you know, when, when, you know, like you described in that, that couple, you know, one probably wanting non-monogamy, but the other one probably not wanting so much of that. Um, Any, any, just maybe if you can give three tips on how couples can just, maybe navigate some of that. And if you have any book recommendations or any um, websites, any resources that you usually recommend or work with. Okay. Um, (laughs) Okay. I think my tips for couples and I, I, Oh God, that's very deep. <laughs> my my tips for couples, I mean, first and foremost, that it's people are relatively incapable of compromising until they feel like they're understood. And so um it's really important to show up for somebody's emotional experience. Even if you disagree, to just give like the moment to let that be the center of the conversation Mm -hmm. um, and just be present for the other person. I think that that seems to be one of the major barriers in conflict is 
we just we don't take the time to be present for the other person's emotional experience before we kind of either try to defend ourselves, mm-hmm. apologize, or correct them, which is like all feels like a band-aid until you just show up for them. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's probably my first tip. My second tip is um to really take the time to understand your whys. Mm. I think that, that that can be difficult, right? For people who are maybe not in spaces where they're used to introspecting about yeah. themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but at the very least to be honest with yourself about whether or not you yeah. really understand why you do what you do, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so that's a good second one. And I think the the last one um, is to understand a little more about how trust and loyalty gets built. Hmm. Uh, I think we as a world understand a lot about mistrust and betrayal. We don't understand a lot about loyalty and trust. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was really recently sitting uh, in a conference, like an affairs conference, um, and the it was teaching a lot about how trust is built through successfully repairing miscommunication, mm-hmm. right? So when there's a, when there's like a little tense moment and then you're able to fix it, that feels like trust. It feels I can be, and, and trust is more than just, you know, about cheating, right? It's, it's about, yeah. can I be safe with you? Can I be vulnerable with you? Do you mm-hmm. care about me? Will you take care of me? All of that trust is established when you're, giving me the benefit of the doubt and taking the time to listen to me and, and being emotionally present for me, all those things in communi- miscommunication repair. That's how mm-hmm. we build trust. And loyalty is built through acts of commitment, you know? Yeah. And so uh, this is where the things like living together or, you know, what are the, our boundaries about uh how to communicate with other people or, you know, like, are you really here with me? Like, you know, if I have, if you get invited to an event, like, of course I'm your plus one, of course you're bringing me like, you know, those, those things um, make people feel like you're loyal to them and you're centering them and you're committed to what that relationship is. Yeah. So when one of those things are missing, mm-hmm. no matter how well you're doing on the other spectrum, somebody's going to feel dissatisfied. Lovely. Those are amazing. <laughs> and next time, tap me in on the affairs <laughs> conference because a lot of what I'm seeing right now is um, a lot of work on rebuilding trust after Ooh. an affair. Um, so, yeah, yeah absolutely. I'll some, definitely let you know. Yeah, some amazing tools. Well, thanks for sharing that. Any book recommendations? Um, any uh, any people's work that you pull from or um, yeah. any books that has been instrumental to your um your process of progress yeah i mean i'm gonna i'm right now uh i'm really in like a pure psych phase so i'm in a lot of like conferences i'm doing so I'm doing a lot of gottman therapy mm-hmm. um as far as i think it depends on what you're wanting to understand um uh gosh what's the name of that book the body keeps the score oh yeah mm-hmm. I have yeah that so mm-hmm. that's a book that's you know really good um just in terms of understanding how we kind of develop as people um 
I think there's more concepts that I would like people to study because I, I don't really actually like to tell people who to understand what through because yeah. I think that what resonates is personal. Mm-hmm. But um, so there's things I, I would love for people to be more and before you, again, to understand why you believe what you believe, yeah. you have to understand that there's a wealth of knowledge out there that a lot of us just aren't tapping into mm-hmm. because we believe we know better. Yeah. So I, I believe people should understand more about like, just the history of human development as it relates to sex and, and relationships. Oh, so they yeah. should look up like anthropological studies, not psych studies, but just human history of human behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that people should know a little bit more about our endocrine system. So knowing about how our hormones impact our bodies and how that's different in male bodies versus female bodies. Mm-hmm. Cause there's a lot of things that are emotional experiences that are actually really hormone experiences. Yeah. Um, and if we understand that, like I can, Probably if I knew every female client's um, menstrual cycle, I could probably (laughs) approach therapy with her based on what stage her hormone levels are in and Mm -hmm. best serve her that way. Yeah. And those are questions I ask. I always, and especially especially when I know there are certain mood shifts around that time. And those are things that I'm constantly even asking the psychiatrist to pay attention to. um, Because oftentimes, you know, those conversations don't come up so much when they're doing med management, but when they're in counseling, we're getting to, we're getting to a lot more of the, you know, what's happening behind the scenes. And I I like tapping into that because there's so much happening throughout the cycle. And, you know, I I feel like we have to do that work to understand it. So we can pay attention to how our body's responding each day. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But then, and then it, but for me, that also means a lot about what, and so this is something that I, that you brought up earlier about like navigating, um, you know, work and spaces. And I wanted to kind of touch on that in mm-hmm. terms of what I find myself also working with, with a lot of women is mm-hmm. a lot of women don't actually want to work full time, <laughs> um, you know, but, uh, maybe we, we have a sense of purpose. We want to work, but maybe we don't want to work full time. I think a lot of women are completely unprepared for how their desires and their priorities might change when we become yeah. parents oh, yeah. because it feels anti-feminist to have those conversations. Mm. Like you might actually be geared towards preferring motherhood yeah. the second you, second you have the baby that might change. Yeah. Like, and you, and women are not prepared for that because it's not like progressive to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot, like I, I had, a, I can think of a client right now who um, was about to upgrade to a new home and she was already like doing a lot of physical work in terms of maintaining the house and working a lot. And when we really dug deep, she was like, you know what? I take a lot of pride in taking care of my home. I actually don't mind that I do all this work. I'm only upset with him that he doesn't help me because I also work too. Mm. And we really got to a place where it's just like, do you know that if you move forward with upgrading to a house, you will no longer be able to afford going part-time, which is what you want to do. And then we really got to a place where she recognized, like, I'm unhappy in my marriage because I'm working too much, mm. not because he's not helping me, because I actually really like taking care of the house. Yeah. Um, wow. And that's, that is the kind of investigative counseling work, to be honest, mm-hmm. that I think is really scarce because it's not, uh, it can be perceived as, um, I don't know, uh, uh, I guess pushing your own agenda if you're yeah. kind of pro- probe in that mm-hmm. manner. 
Yeah. And I'm also wondering if you're not a therapist that is grounded or um, have done your own work, <laughs> you know, even some of that could be triggering and you could feel like, well, you might even question that. You might even do more more damage, right? That's what yeah. I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. But that's and beautiful. Any, even for me, I have to say, one of one of the things that I always bring up in, in my group uh, case management is mm-hmm. like, check me if I'm projecting my traditional lens on this because that is my own personal development as a woman too. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I can pick up on that in a woman because I feel it in myself. But I also sometimes feel like, oh, maybe I'm trying to assign her her remedy or or whatever. (laughs) Um, So I I really do try to, and I even, I think I, what's important for me to keep myself, you know, green is telling my client straight up, I'm going to be honest this is something that I believe in. So there's a chance that I might be projecting my, my beliefs onto you. So take what I'm about to say with that understanding, Mm -hmm. but have you considered this? Yeah. Um, and if they push back and, or if they disagree or if they say that still doesn't sound like me, then I accept it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that's beautiful. Yeah. And asking permission to do that even more beautiful. You're, you're modeling. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're doing incredible work. Thank um, you. Tell our listeners about your podcast because you're doing, you're doing other things. I know we didn't mention that in your bio, but you have your own podcast, um, Unlocked. Uh, you work in a private practice. Um, you also teach, right? Yes. Oh my God. I, yeah, I do a bunch of things. Um, but I, I actually took a break from teaching. I was an adjunct professor for a year. I took a break because okay. I'm focusing on research. Okay. Um, but uh, so right now I am, yes, working in a private practice, working full time in New Jersey. So if you're hearing this and you're in the state of New Jersey, mm-hmm. I do telehealth um, as well as my podcast. My podcast is surrounding uh, mental health and identity related topics through the Caribbean lens. Yeah. So, I mean, my goal is to always have a, a guest that is either Caribbean born or from the diaspora and, you know, no language barriers, nothing, but we're just having real conversations about yeah. either an identity or a mental health related, you know, concept. And yeah. it's been really beautiful for me to just connect and, and learn that. in that way. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know if, 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 if anything, I'll, at the end of it, I'll have a body of work that I'm proud of. And that's the most important thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when, and uh, as far as my research, uh, I'm currently in the process of putting together a research proposal for um, studying the impact of substance abuse counseling in the Caribbean prison setting. Okay. Um, so, well, you know, pray for me that <laughs> I get this proposal through. Um, it's something I, I'm really passionate about. I really believe in. Um, and you know, as I was doing some, I was doing a first, just like a written, uh, like a review case review based on what uh, what I'm finding about Caribbean counseling and substance abuse counseling. And I realized that there are no articles there. there there's, I think in, I found two articles. One was in, written in the 1980s and another one like in the late 2000s. Um, nobody is researching substance abuse counseling in Caribbean landscapes, which means essentially that uh, we're just adopting practices that were normalized in other spaces even though we don't have, you know, AANA, uh, halfway houses, you know, all these, you know, uh, systems. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to support the podcast, 
please share it with others. Post about it on socials and leave us a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can check out our new website at www.sexualspace.com or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Her Sexual Space and Her Sexual Space Podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you.